Hey everybody, happy uh, Sabbath or Sabbath weekend whenever you're listening to this. This is another episode of Sunday School Bonanza brought to you by This Week in Mormons, the greatest Mormon podcast community the world has ever seen. Uh, you can join us at thisweekinmormons.com, leave comments there, or of course join us on our Facebook page or on Twitter and interact with us. We love those sorts of things. Uh, this week's lesson, we are on lesson number nine of the Doctrine and Covenants slash Church History Manual the only true and living church. And to help us dissect all the great stuff we have here, we have a new host, everybody. My esteemed colleague, Jared Gillens, is with us. Say hi, Jared. Hello. Uh, do, do you want to introduce yourself briefly since you are, they need to trust you. So I want to make sure that sure. they feel. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I've lived a, a, a full and, and robust life. Oh, that's, that's great. Um, and I, I work here in uh, the D.C. area, uh, close to J Jeff. We used to be in the same ward, but he was torn from us by an unjust and... It's called gerrymandering, people, <laughs> and even the church does it. Yeah. No, we're, 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 we're fine. Actually, we, I wouldn't say even the church does it. The church very, very deliberately engages in gerrymandering when it comes to drawing ward boundaries. But, but we do sustain our leaders. Yeah. yeah um, but yes, yeah, so I, I've, I've known Jeff for several years now. I'm happy to be on the podcast. We've been trying to put this together for a while, actually, mm -hmm. but it's just kind of ships in the night sort of thing. Well, and, I, and I guess for my bona fides, uh, I, I teach Sunday school. I've been doing that for a few years. Uh, I teach the gospel doctrine class in my ward, and I'm also the Sunday school president. So, you know, mm -hmm. that, that carries some weight. He's legit, folks. So hopefully you all trust me now. He's not messing around. And he was, a, he was a, before I was ejected from the ward, he was a very good Sunday school president. Well, I can't you. speak to it now. I haven't been able to observe him, keep tabs, et cetera, et cetera. But I think he's okay. Well, thank you, sir. So, uh... Jared, what are we dealing with in this lesson? There's a lot of interesting stuff. This mm -hmm. is this is one, if you were to read every single referenced section of Doctrine and Covenants, it would take you quite some time. There's a lot of stuff in there. Yeah. But what's the gist, just so people the, know? The gist, as I, as I gathered, was that we're actually now talking about the, the physical and legal organization of the church. Up to now, we've been restoring things such as ancient scripture and priesthood authority, uh, doctrines that had been lost or changed over the years. And now we're actually saying... Let's organize a church. Yeah, and what's really interesting of the time, I love setting the stage a little bit. Mm -hmm. And you and I were talking about this a little bit before we recorded, that it's really easy to think of, of now with hindsight, to like, yeah, you know, there was the first vision and then the Book of Mormon and a restoration, and of course the church was organized. It makes sense from a narrative perspective. But if we put ourselves in the time, in 1830... It was very different. For one, the first vision wasn't really knowledge. It wasn't part of the church's evangelizing efforts. It was This was very much about this angel Moroni and a new book. That was really what was going on. But beyond that, most people weren't thinking much that this was supposed to become some church or some movement. Uh, I would say even at the in the initial process, Joseph Smith wasn't even thinking that. But obviously, he and Oliver Cowdery were a little bit more apprised of well, yes, yeah, so the Lord's well, plans. Well, and I, but I, as you know, you mentioned the first vision, and even Joseph, in in more than one of the accounts of the first vision, he admits he, his intent in going to the Lord was not to say, "Should I be starting something new?" It was just to say, "Tell me which church to join." Yeah. And he even said it, it hadn't occurred to me that none of them. The answer would be none of them. So yeah, even from the from the start, there was not necessarily an intent or a a movement, an intentional movement towards church organization. Um, and also, like you know, and, and and you kind of you touched on this already, but it's just really hard sometimes from our modern perspective 
looking back, we just look at history as a necessary series of events that right. that first vision had to lead to a vision with Moroni, which had to lead to receiving plates, which had to lead to the Book of Mormon, which had to lead to obviously the restoration of the only true and living church. But history doesn't work that way. And the people who were present at the time were just taking one step after another without mm-hmm. knowing what was necessarily what was going to happen next. Yeah, which is very interesting. And, and even after the church is organized, something I love at the time is that Joseph Smith was actually not he was not the great orator of the church. That wasn't really the role he played in the early days of the church. Even Oliver Cowdery was ordained the second elder. We'll get into some of that. But he was actually the one who gave the first formal public sermon. Right, and it even, he was even named first first preacher, right? Yeah, yeah. and he was named first preacher. So it's it was a very different time. So a lot of this stuff can be found in section 20, at least the particulars of it. Section 20 if you're not familiar, is often regarded as sort of the constitution of the church. Right. It is the section that is really all about church organization and what went on with that and and how this all happened. Now, if you remember, April 6th, 1830 uh, was the date the church was organized. It could seem like a random date, but there was reason behind it, Um, namely that it came through revelation to Joseph Smith that they should organize the church on that date. And I believe later revelations, I forget which section, 27 or 107, I'm not sure, has the, has the mention that um, that, of course, also coincides with the uh, the birth of the Son of God. I've never, people say that, and I've always, I've reread some of those sections or the, the verse. The section. It's, I, no, I think it's actually in section 20 that people would point to to try and po- try and prove that April 6th is somehow well, the date of Christ's birth. But I've, I've never really felt secure in that myself from what I've read. I mean, just from reading it myself, I, I, I don't find that specifically taught. Uh, here, I've got something for you. Okay. A Joseph Smith quote from 1833. Okay. So in 1833, Joseph Smith said on the anniversary of the church organization said the day was spent in a very agreeable manner in giving and receiving knowledge, which appertained to this kingdom. It being just 1800 years since the savior laid down his life that men might have everlasting life and only three years since the church had come out of wilderness preparatory for the last dispensation. So that's interesting because instead that seems to say it has been 1,800 years to the date since the Savior laid down his life. Yeah, I feel like that's it's interesting. a right? stretch a little bit. And, 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 and one of the things, not to like grasp at straws, but <laughs> uh, when Christ would have been born and died, I believe uh, that we, they would have been on the Julian calendar. Uh, which would have had 10 months, I think, in the year, or, or yes. And yeah. then uh, with the, um, anyway, the Gregorian calendar is what we use now. So all the days shifted. So are we talking about April 6th, uh, year one, Julian or Gregorian? I, I don't know. I the just feel only like Gregorian thing any of us should concern ourselves with are those old chant CDs of course, from the 90s. Of course. That's all that matters. Anyway, I, like I said, I, I don't want to be dismissive. Uh, no, and I, and I, I don't think we have any reason not to believe that Christ's birthday is April 6th, but... It's not necessarily <laughs> anything I base my testimony on. Uh, nor should you. Um, if anyone listening to this does base his or her testimony on that, uh, send us an email. We should talk. I'm just, I don't want you to get hung up on difficult stuff, folks. That's not, mm. that's not what's going to help you. Go to your closest institute and ask to speak to the director of the institute and they'll sort you out. Yeah, there you go. Um, so a lot of cool things happen. So we get up here. There's the revelation. We get into section 20, if I can open it up. Uh, and there's a little, you know, it just gets right into it. Um, and we know that some of these these parts of section 20, section 20 is pretty long. Some of these parts might have been received as early as 1829, which we can presume actually was a revelation of Joseph Smith saying, get ready. 
this is coming. Mm-hmm. And that's also funny to think about because if it was 1829, I don't know exactly when in 1829, but if it was uh, in the the earlier half of the year, that means the translation of the Book of Mormon could have still been going on when this because re- re- that translation finished, I think, in June of 1829. I want to say sounds right. Um, but then beyond that, anything beyond that was during the entire the drama of the publication of the Book of Mormon, which was a, a drawn out process because basically Grandin kept trying to like back out and they kept having to convince him to keep going. Uh, so either way, the Book of Mormon was published in March of 1830. And then knowing that this day has to come on April 6th, about 50 or so people get together at the, the Whitmer house over in Fayette, New York, and they organize as a church. And there's many reasons for this, one of which was because of New York law. They had to have at least six people, and that's why we always hear about six. This confused me a lot as a kid because I'd see videos, and they'd show like 50 people. and be like, well, why are only right. six of them members? Like, the other one's not good enough? What's – why? Probably – my assumption uh, as, a, as a somewhat historian uh, <laughs> is that it was easier to do the paperwork if you only had six people. Like, they needed a minimum of six, and they probably said, you know what? If all we need is six, let's start it that way, and then we can add more later on our own records. Well, and I also think the six who were made members were ones who had seen, who were testimo- testimonial, who were, uh, who had seen the golden plates, who mm-hmm. were witnesses of the plates, and I think that also already been baptized as well in advance. Right, but weren't all, weren't all people eventually rebaptized after the church was organized? I don't know if all of them. I don't. I'm not sure if it's all of them were, or just the ones who wanted to join the church who had not been baptized in the church of christ at the time it wasn't lds at the time right um but the ones who've been previously baptized by baptists or others had to then be rebaptized. i'm not certain about the six who were joined up front whether they were rebaptized. not either i don't know that's a that's a that's a homework for all uh that's your personal research project is boom to find that out boom uh another bit of fun trivia here Section 20 actually has what might be the first reference to the first vision. In the Doctrine and Covenants. In the Doctrine and Covenants. In the Doctrine and Covenants. But this is pretty cool because really the first main recorded one, the first, uh, the diary account of the first vision was from 1832. And there are some records of a mention of it being in 1831. But this was 1830. Or perhaps even earlier, if it was among the 1829 part of the section. Mm -hmm. Either way, it's very interesting because the first vision, again, was not a big part of the discussion of the saints at the time. But it's you could miss it if you're not looking for it. But if you look at, at verse 5, it says, After it was truly manifested unto this first elder that he had received a remission of his sins, he was entangled again in the vanities of the world. Jared, do you want to unpack that for us? Well, sure. As we uh, learn from some of the alter- well. I guess they're not alternative accounts, but the accounts of the first vision that we don't usually use, we usually refer to the one in Joseph Smith history, which is actually, I want to say the latest or second latest. Second latest. Uh, yeah. Go back to uh, a few bonanzas ago and you can re- review uh, the different accounts of the... Um, episode three. Everyone, episode three. Yes, of this year. Uh, lesson three. Lesson. Some, some, sorry. Yes. Uh, anyway, so what we don't get from that Joseph Smith history account is that when Joseph, uh, w- from a couple of the other accounts that he gave us, when he went into the grove um, and received his first vision, he focused in a couple of those accounts on the fact that uh, the, per- the, per- the personages he saw granted him remission of his sins, mm-hmm. told him his sins were forgiven him, and that... Um, and that was what he walked away with. And that was, you know, the, the main point of some of those earlier accounts. So, yeah. So, uh, Jeff, I think is absolutely correct. When you look at verse five again, uh, 
that it had been truly manifested under this first elder, meaning Joseph, that he had received the remission of his sins. What truer manifestation of that could there be but the first vision in which God the Father and Jesus Christ told that to him? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's not, I don't think it's too bad of a leap there. No, no, it's not at all. It's uh, Yeah, it's very, very interesting just to have these little mentions of things like that. And I love that that's a whole other part of the lesson. Yeah, Joseph Smith's concern for his own salvation. And we see sort of the genesis of the first vision accounts that go from Joseph's own iniquity. Instead of instead, it becomes the bigger discussion of sort of how the church came about. But again, listen to lesson three. There's more of that in there. So, yeah, the church is organized. What else do what else happened that day? Anything, what else is coming to mind here? Joseph and Oliver, we learned from the last lesson, of course, we give the Melchizedek priesthood but they were not yet ordained to priesthood office. Right. So uh, after the church was organized and Joseph had been designated to be the first elder of the church, uh, he, I can't remember the order. I'm going to get it mixed up. One of them, I think Joseph first ordained. I think Oliver first ordained him as the first elder. As the first elder. And then once he had been ordained as first elder, and we would maybe also consider that, you know, presiding priest, presiding high priest of the church. Oh, no, sorry. Joseph ordained Oliver as an elder, then Oliver ordained Joseph. There you go. I'm sorry. So, yeah, so first Joseph ordained Oliver, and then Oliver ordained Joseph, but specifically as first elder of the church, designating him as the leader of the church. And then also uh, what happened that day, and I think is very significant, is that this is the first, like at that meeting in which the church was organized, was also the first... Um, administration of the sacrament in mm-hmm. the latter days in an organized church of Jesus Christ, the latter of uh, uh, the church of Jesus Christ restored, um, which is significant because, you know, we, w- this is something that kind of becomes maybe too often said because uh, in, in that we get, get too, too used to hearing it, but is very important to be noted. Nonetheless, is that the main focal point of all of our church meetings, our weekly church meetings is the sacrament, which is, I agree. Yeah. So it, so it's significant, I think, to see that at this first meeting, I mean, sure, it's momentous and it's huge and it's so important that the church is organized, but even maybe even more important than that is this ordinance was restored. Well, and if you look at the order of things, it started with a prayer and then a vote was taken to accept Joseph and Oliver as the presiding authorities of the church, um, and then the ordinations, and then the sacrament came immediately after that. So it actually came before um, some were given the Holy Ghost, those who had been previously baptized. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and many other people were also baptized on that day, I guess. So there was the technical organization, and then the meeting broke, and then they baptized other people. Right, and it makes sense the, the comfort, the, 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 they're bestowing the gift of the Holy Ghost, because how can you be confirmed a member of the church if there's no church to be a member of, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but that's a good point about the sacrament. And uh, I admit, maybe it's callous of me, but when you're in a sacrament meeting, and they always say, now we'll like to move to the most important part of our meeting. And when they say that every Sunday, part of me says, oh, yeah. Well, it almost becomes a vain repetition in a way. Almost. It sounds weird for me to say that, well, right? But do you get but, what I mean? But what makes like, it not, I mean, it's repetition for sure, but what makes it not a vain repetition is the fact that it's true. And we should be, mm-hmm. that should be not only the focal point of the meeting, but in many ways the focal point of our week is that we're, we're all week long, we've been covenant, we had covenanted the week before to always remember Christ, to keep his commandments. Uh, and what's the other part? The, and to take his name <laughs> upon us. And to take his name upon us. And, uh, and so it's time to read Mosiah, son. Get right, right. Sorry about that. <laughs> or, or you know, talk, section twenty actually. Whatever. It talks yeah. about it. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, so yeah. How important is it that all week long we had we are supposed to be doing these things we covenant to do, and we're building up to the point where we're going to covenant to do it again because we didn't do it right mm-hmm. the first time. We have to do it over and over and over, and we keep doing it yeah. over and over. What I find really fascinating about the way the church is restored. 
uh, is that the time, you know, the more the more the Protestant movement going on at the time was much more in favor of the the emotional, the the spiritual elements of such. M- many people were trying to do away with the more liturgical things like found in Catholicism. Joseph really liked to pull from both sides of that in, in restoring the church, which tells us how the church should be, that there were good elements of all these things, even up to and including the sacraments, something like that. Where obviously we don't believe in transubstantiation as Latter-day Saints, which is, you know, that you're actually physically eating the flesh and blood of Christ. But that Joseph cared enough about things like ordinances, which we'll talk about as well, or we did talk about, um, the power of ordinances and the, the, why these things are important. And we see this, and of course, as temple rituals evolve, you come to see how much Joseph pulled from Revelation and finding that revelation from studying the New Testament as well as the Old Testament and how everything came together to create the church. And that started with just something as seemingly simple as the sacrament, but obviously evolved into a much, much greater practices as time went on. Now, one thing I found interesting, since we're in a section like Section 20, Section 20 has been altered quite a few times, actually. And I think this is just good stuff for people to know about uh, in their own study. And I'm not an expert on all of these things by any stretch of the imagination, but I have seen that some people take issue with the fact that many sections of the Doctrine and Covenants were altered after the fact. So a lot of these were originally published as the Book of Commandments. And we'll get into some more of this later in other lessons, of course. But... Um, Joseph Smith did amend his revelations, folks, and I would say that's mostly because he received revelations, but there were his words interpreting the inspiration from God. Uh, and so stuff changed over time, and that's okay. And that includes even parts of section 20, even the back end of section 20, where it talks more about specific roles in the church. That was changed later on because um, the church changed a little bit, and it just needed to evolve. Modern revelation. That's the beauty. Well, and this makes sense to me. Like, There's a lot we don't know about the specifics of the revelatory process that, you know, that maybe sometimes Joseph did hear a physical voice and words were given to him. But how often were some of those, maybe could some of those revelations been given as impressions and thoughts? Like a lot of times when you or I have an idea, we don't have like actual words going through our heads. We have an impression, something that, uh, you know, how do you describe a thought? How do you describe an idea in your mind? And so Joseph, as he's receiving truth, is doing his best to take those things that he received as impressions, as visions, as things that he saw, and put them into words. So why not go back and revise and reword and say, no, 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 I haven't got it quite right to word it the way I understood it. Mm -hmm. Which makes perfect sense to me, because his understanding as a prophet evolved in time. I mean, you see Book of Mormon translation. At first, he relied on the physical Urim and the Thummim, then he started to prefer his seer stone. Mm-hmm. And then as that evolved, as we'll get into in future lessons, when we did, you know, uh, a Bible translation or a Book of Moses, Book of Abraham, most of that came to straight inspiration. Right. And that's it. So clearly he became more confident in himself as a prophet and as a seer to dictate these things. And that same, that same thing applies to revising what he has in the Doctrine and Covenants. Well, we're about out of time, I'm afraid. Jared, thank you for being here. It's been a pleasure. Nice to have you here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Once again, everybody, Lesson 9, the only true and living church. Really encourage you to get into Doctrine and Covenants Section 20 in particular and read some of the uh, supplemental materials that are in the lesson if you go on LDS.org and check out the lesson. There's a lot of worthwhile stuff in there that'll be of interest to you. But with that being the case, we hope this helps you have a better Gospel Doctrine experience. And for Jared, I'm Jeff. Sunday School Bonanza is out. Bye-bye.